The Square Peg Podcast. Mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasos. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. And now, here's a message from one of the sponsors who make this program possible. Keith Johnson, owner of Camino Tattoo Studio, has been a professional licensed tattoo artist in Las Cruces since 2000. He does everything from American traditional to photorealistic tattooing, and he works by appointment only. Email him today to get your custom tattoo. You can find him at CaminoTattooStudio.com or from the bio in the link at www.CaminoTattooStudio.com. Of course, you can also find Camino Tattoo Studio on Instagram and Facebook. And just a little personal note for me, um, turning 48 here real soon, didn't get my first tattoo until about two years ago. And um, while Keith didn't do that one, he's done three since then. And uh, I've been going through this kind of transition, you know, in my later 40s, if you will, and uh, made some changes to my fitness, to my, my supplementation and my diet. And I've seen some big changes in my body. And I'll tell you, I've never loved my body. I probably never will. But with the changes I've made and the artwork that Keith has uh, been able to put on my body, learning to hate it a little bit less every day. So if you want to be uh, like me and get some good artwork on you, give give Keith a, an email uh, and, and go get your the tattoo. The Peg Podcast. My guest today grew up in the, in the entertainment world. She lived in 12 states, has a keen interest in magic and literature, has managed Grammy award-winning bands, and her novel, Handbook for Mortals, spent a whopping 23 hours on the New York Times bestseller list before being pulled amid scandal. Lanny Serum, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, um, you know, I know you're, you're traveling right now and you're doing a lot of things. Thanks for joining us. I know you haven't been feeling well either. Where are you today, actually? I am somewhere between Indianapolis and Madison, Wisconsin. It sounds pretty cold to me. Is that? Are you doing the uh, the Comic Con circuit? Uh, well, this is actually so. There's these Harry Potter events called um, it's called WizardFest.com. Okay. Well, I mean that's their website. I guess WizardFest is what they're called, and um, they do like a different city every night. So that's actually what I'm doing currently. Um, I still do a lot of Comic Cons. I also do other kind of uh, appearances. I mean, I'm an actress as well, so sometimes I um, do a con and, and I'm a guest, and I sometimes I host panels as well. So uh, I'm a jack of all trades when it comes to this stuff. So I'm, I'm glad you said Wizard Fest because I know you've I've heard you talk about that before, and you've you've, you've put it on your Instagram, and I just couldn't think of the word actually. Um, I know I don't remember if well, I, got, I go ahead. I did. I did Wizard World, which are a Comic Con company. I did that for three years, um, so you might be referencing that. Um, Wizard Fest is this Harry Potter event okay. um, that, that I just started doing. But Wizard World was a the largest Comic Con company in North America. They actually just recently got bought out by a company called Fan Expo, 
So now they're all fan expos. But um, I did that. I did Wizard World for three years. Wow. Fourth Country. That's... That's that's definitely a world that I'm not too familiar with, and I definitely want to get to that a little bit later. Now, I don't remember. Did I send you uh, a link to our our, our intro music, uh, Barrymore, by the hashtag uh, Searchlight Needles? Uh, you sent me a link to, to, yes, you did. Did you get an opportunity to listen to it? Uh, I did at the time, yeah. Uh, general impression. Give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Uh, you know, it's not my kind of music. So that's the thing. That's the, if I'm being honest. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think for the people that would like that, it's, it's good. Yeah, you know, I, I uh, that's kind of something new I'm doing this season, and I like to give these guys a hard time. I mean, the joke is that the band really sucks, but they're not that bad. And uh, you know, my friend, uh, my friend Robert, who's the the vocalist and the the trombone player, uh, he, he's good on that. He's good with me giving them a hard time about their band sucking, but not really sucking in real life. Now, I've heard you say that you, as a kid, you always wanted to have a normal life. Um, I mean, what was it about your life growing up that wasn't normal? What did you see as normal? And um, and can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, my real dad died when I was eight and a half months old. Um, so I, I do have an adopted dad, but I basically grew up with like it was me and my mom and she would take me around the country and you know I kind of wanted to, I wanted to have that like normal family life that a lot of that most people kind of take for granted you know um I didn't really have that um we did travel a lot and I got to do some cool things as a kid but you know I really just I got I, I you know as a kid when you're like eight years old you, you know you want to have like a normal Christmas and you want to have like you know that kind of normal experiences that I just didn't really get to have. So. Now, why were you guys traveling so much? Uh, I think my mom was looking for happiness. I don't I don't know. Uh, I was also a figure skater, so a little bit was for my skating, but a lot of it was just my mom kind of moving around and, and trying to figure out, I think, where she wanted to be, which I think she still doesn't know, so there's that. She's still on that journey. Was she in the entertainment yeah. field? Was she an actress or a performer of some sort? Um, you know, she did some stuff when she was younger. She did like talk talks. Uh, my mom had me kind of late in life, so uh, my mom was practically forty when she had me. So, um, so she had done some stuff earlier in life. She was actually really gorgeous when she was young. Like she looked like uh, a lot of people thought she favored Marilyn Monroe. And, um, she was really pretty. She would win beauty contests, and I think I think she probably wanted to do more stuff in the entertainment business, but kind of got caught up in other things and never really pursued it probably the way she could have. Yeah, you know, I didn't know before you just mentioned it. I didn't know about the figure skating. I guess you know, uh, obviously that's a very athletic endeavor, but there's also very much a performance art, you know, part to that. Now, you said you you began acting at age three, and you wrote your first play at nine. How did that all come about? I mean, what was the inspiration? Did you have any guidance or anybody who, who kind of you know brought you along and, and showed you how to do these things? Uh, well, yeah, I started acting when I was three. I, I wrote my first script when I was nine. I would I wouldn't call it a play necessarily. Um, it was obviously very basic because I was nine. But um, I I mean I had some guidance. My my first cousin was in NSYNC, so I I guess. I guess I had a little bit of that, but he, he was also very busy, so I, um, 
and obviously that came a little, a little bit more when we were teenagers. But um, I, I guess, I mean, I, I took influence to a lot of people around me. Um, I, you know, when I did plays as a kid, like there was always older people that, you know, would take a, a liking to me and, and what I was doing, and and, um, and and you know, and and I, I was a well liked child, I guess. So people always wanted to try to help me. So you said you have a cousin who was in in sync. Uh, is your whole family? I mean, is that just kind of coincidence, or was there a, a, a tradition in your family of, of being performers? Uh, I mean, there aren't. Uh, I have like a great uncle who was on. This is well, he's not even. It's kind of complicated. My my real dad who died. This was his like brother-in-law. He was on. He was uh, Dr. Alan Cornerman on General Hospital, but I've literally never met him, so <clears throat> I don't, I don't know how, how much that that for anything. Um, and then I, um, like I said, my mom had some interest. I think never really pursued it enough. Um, I think there's a couple of other people. So I guess there are some entertainers somewhere along the way, but uh, not predominantly. No. Now, we know the direction, and we'll get into it in here just a few minutes, the direction of, of what your, your creative interests are as far as your writing. Um, what was the content of the script you wrote when you were nine? Uh, it was, <laughs> I had written an IG, uh, a, a movie version of I Dream of Jeannie, okay. and I had it starring my best friend at the time as well, who lived down the street from me, his name was David Sargent. And then I had to start his whole family, including his younger brother, Kelly Sargent. And the funny thing is, uh, we didn't, and then they moved away. We didn't see each other for 30 years. And then uh, Kelly actually ended up becoming my fiance. So that's kind of a funny story. But I'd written them into the first story I ever wrote. That's, so. That is pretty amazing. Now, uh, along the way, and I don't know if this was before... Uh, well, you've you've managed several bands, so obviously there's some sort of you, some sort of sense of some business sense, uh, and some sort of familiarity with music, or at least how to market it and market the bands. How did you get into managing bands, and, and what bands did you manage? So, uh, I it's funny. I think I kind of fell I, I fell into a lot of things along the way. Um, <clears throat> when I was young, I I started touring as a production assistant for the Monkees. Um, and that was just like something I kind of fell into. And then when I moved out to the West Coast to pursue my acting and writing career, um, I would get jobs here and there. I'd be offered to work with this band or that band. And, and, you know, it was good money, so I would take it. And then I was actually kind of like working my way out of that when I met this band called 100 Monkeys. And I had one of the guys that starred in Twilight in the band, Jackson Rathbone. And they ended up, we ended up along, and they, they wanted my help. And I thought it, it, it like it was a good, it made sense at the time because they were all actors as well. And when I really liked the band, and I, you know, there there seemed to be like a simpatico sort of situation. So I actually <clears throat> started just working with them, and then they ended up firing their manager because of some like I don't even remember some like silly stuff that happened. Not silly, like it was serious at the time, but it was. In retrospect, I think it was maybe silly, but um, and they they just turned to me and they're like, "Okay, you're our manager now." And I was like, oh, "Okay," so uh, that just kind of happened. And then after after that band 
kind of, they eventually broke up. Um, we had some success and everything. They were really a great band, but eventually they kind of all went their separate ways. Um, I, I thought, well, okay, I'll, like, I sort of started to go down that route, and then I got offered to manage Blues Traveler, and that was, so I did that, and then the Plain White Tees, and, and then once that kind of, I, like, dissipated, I, I realized that I really wanted to go back to, like, you know, the acting and the writing thing, that which is, you know, what I was personally passionate about for myself. Even though I did love managing bands, and, and I definitely have a knack for it, and had some success at it, and, you know, could see myself managing a band again if it was the right band, but I do believe that, you know, when you manage a band, you really, you have to, you have to be their number one fan to really be a good manager or, you know, someone who really like sees how awesome they really are. And if you, if you can't get there, you shouldn't manage them. So. And so you're, you know, the, the, I think the, the, I've heard of the plain white tees of, I'm sure everybody's heard of blues traveler. I'm going to assume this is the 1990s and that was probably a pretty crazy time for you doing a lot of traveling and everything. Are you cut out? Can you repeat that question? Yeah, so, you know, in the 1990s, obviously, uh, I'm going to imagine it was the 90s that you were working with Blues Traveler. That it was a pretty crazy time. That was when they were very no. popular. No, it wasn't the 90s. I was a child in the 90s. <laughs> oh, okay. So this was this was after that. Well, I mean, at some point, you you, you said you worked at David Copperfield's theater. Um, what did you do there? and Where okay. did your interest in magic come from? Yeah, uh, so just to clarify, I managed Blues Traveler from, like, 2013 to, like, the the end of 2017. Oh, I was totally uh, wrong. <laughs> yeah, uh, I actually got them back on the radio after 20 years of not being on the radio, but... Yeah, I definitely, I definitely wasn't old enough to manage them in the nineties. Well, then you got to work with a very thin John Popper, right? Uh, I, a thinner. I wouldn't say. I, I don't know that John Popper's ever been thin, but my understanding was he had a he had a hip replacement, and then might have had some bariatric surgery. I, I could be wrong though. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, he did have. Well, he had a motorcycle accident. Uh, I don't know specifically if they replaced the hip, but that's possible. But he did have geriatric. Uh, uh, yes. Okay, so we we were going to talk about your working at David Copperfield's theater. What was that all about? Yeah, so that was in Las Vegas. Uh, I I started doing that when I was like eighteen or nineteen, uh, and I did that for a few years. And I, I kind of on and off would do that when I was also acting and and you know trying trying to do other stuff too. So um, I worked in the theater, and uh, it was a really fun time. I was friends with. Uh, you know, there, there was a close-knit group of us, and uh, the crew was like family, and, um, you know, like we were all young and very ambitious, and uh, it, was a, it was a good time in my life, I think, for sure. Now, where did your interest in magic come from? Um, well, I guess, you know, who wouldn't want to be able to do real magic? I mean, I grew up liking, like, you know, my favorite book series as a child was The Chronicles of Narnia. And so, you know, I, I would say that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm into fantasy, but I would say more like the, I don't know if modern day is the right way, but I, but I tend to lean towards the ones that have like, um, that have like the, this world element. So what I mean by that is, uh, so like Lord of the Rings doesn't really like Lord of the Rings is like, you know, far fetched fantasy. Um, whereas like Twilight or Harry Potter is kind of like 
a little bit more like grounded and and twilight definitely a little bit more grounded in like this is the world in which you live in and then there's some magical elements that come into play okay so i just i you know vampire diaries as well or so i definitely lean towards like the magic that like magic in the real world i guess kind of so that was that was you know what i was into okay that you know Make, that makes a little bit of sense to me because you really are speaking a different language. Not really a different language, but you know that's a genre of, of, of storytelling and, and books and, and TV and movie that I've never really been into. So I'm glad I was able to get you to explain that to me. Now, um, one thing I've always wondered, I think when people hear the name David Copperfield um, or they hear maybe Penn and Teller, um, they don't understand that, you know, they, they think magic. And then at the end of the day, I know Copperfield, I think they're both both of the, the ones that I mentioned are actually illusionists. Um, can you just kind of give a brief description? What's the difference between magic and illusionism? Well, allu- uh, illusionists or, I mean, uh, you know, and, and, and there's a even varied versions of that, but what David does, Penn and Teller do, uh, they do like big stage illusions. So that, you know, it's not the sleight of hand. It's not like I'm going to show up at your door and, like, you know, bend a fork and half in front of you. You know, this is like I'm going to make a car appear. Um, so it's it's more like kind of on a grand scale. So um, actually David will tell you that he's not good at sleight of hand, which is um, a, like a very pure form of magic. But, you know, what he's really good at is that on stage, you know, uh, like showmanship, and you know, when it comes to that, like David really, you know, is the best at that. Penn and Teller, what they do is actually even a little different. They kind of poke fun of it in their own way, and their their stick is really good as well. It's just kind of a little different. Um, like David's the cool music, um, I'm a musician. David's like the cool magician, though. You know, like he dated Claudia Schiffer, and you know, like he's like a lot of magicians aren't thought of to be cool. Uh, but, but, you know, David actually is, right? So, so, so it sounds to me like charisma has a lot to do with things. And I guess with Penn and Teller, when you've got a duo, a, a duo like that, uh, having good chemistry is probably pretty important, probably adds to the, to the whole charismatic effect. Now, I want to talk about your, your novel, uh, Handbook for Mortals. Now, you, I've heard you say it was originally written as a screenplay. Uh, why did you adapt it to a novel? And, and tell me about that process. Yeah, so, I mean, I'd only ever written scripts. That was kind of, you know, I wrote scripts. I wrote things that I wanted to, you know, be in, you know, the interest in me, that kind of stuff. Um, And then I had a small book publisher really, like, convince me that it could be a book, it could be a book series, like, it could be the next, you know, Twilight, sort of speak, and that I really should, uh, you know, she convinced me to change the ending to where it could continue as a series, because as a script, it was kind of like, uh, you know, uh, you know, beginning, middle, end, and that was it. It wasn't going to be like a, a a universe or anything. So, so it was. It was. It, you wrapped it up nice and neat, kind of like uh, that's the way I like my stories. And one of the things I don't know if you ever read uh, Chekhov, any of his short stories. One of the things I don't like about that is he leaves things open ended. Um, but any in any case, you were you were convinced uh, to go ahead and adapt it to a novel. Now you said you had some editors. Um, when it comes to when it comes to fictional writing, uh, does your editor help you develop or work out storylines and character development, or is it just strictly you know sentence structure and grammar and, and and things like that? Um. Well, I think it depends on your relationship with your editor. Um, 
I had, I, yeah, I had like four editors, uh, which is, you know, kind of funny. People give me uh, flack. But there was, we had to rush the book at one point, which is why there were a couple of mistakes that did end up in the book. But to be clear, uh, almost every major book has some kind of mistake in it here or there. So uh, there are a couple, though, that, that I, 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 I am very frustrated actually appeared in the book. But I had a couple of editors that were really just focused on grammar. Um, and I had, a, I had one editor that worked with me that helped me really, like, go back and forth on making the script in the book very similar because um, that was a big concern of mine and then I had one editor that was you know really they I mean there were there was content you know notes in regards to content we went back and forth on some stuff and a couple of things that I was like okay like I get what you're saying with this and I, I would change it and a couple of things where I was like you know I hear I, like I understand what you're saying but I would st- I kind of stood firm on what I thought as far as you know, leaving the book the way that it was because now, I, I believe. Now, did you did you have life. a publisher yet at this time, or were you still shopping it around? No, I had a publisher. Okay. Now, um, h- how long was that process? Do you think to, to transition from a screenplay to a novel? Uh, it took me two years to turn it from a a screenplay into a book. Okay. Now, as far as the plot, your your main character, uh, Esther Holder, I believe, um, is uh, comes from a family of folk magic. No. Per- Am I not right? Uh, her name, her name's Zade. Zade. Okay. She, yeah. There's a there's a long. Sounds like a Germanish name. So Zade for short. Um. But she comes from a a family of folk magic practitioners. Now, what's folk magic? Uh. So folk magic is like uh, a little bit more rudimentary. Uh. You know, it's like uh. It, it can be herbs or, uh. But it can be other things. Um. Uh. You know, it's more like root magic, I guess, is the best way to put it. Okay. Now, eventually she moves to Las Vegas and and puts together this troupe of of stage magic, something along the line of maybe what Copperfield or or, or the people in Vegas are doing? Right. She she goes to work for a show that... And and the idea is that... And she didn't go to work for David Copperfield, but in in essence it was supposed to be like David Copperfield. uh, You know, like if David had like a... A, a really good competitor, like this, would be like the person. Right, and I guess what I was getting at is maybe you're drawing on your experiences working at that theater uh, to try to help develop, you know, this story. Um, take us through, just kind of very in a very general sense, what 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 the book, uh, what, what she does with this troupe. Well, she go. I mean, so and in big shows like that, they have. Uh, you know, what's called magi who are kind of like people that help assist with the illusions. And they also usually have like some other performers that help make the bigger tricks happen, you know, or illusions as you will, like, you know, okay, this girl's going to, you know, disappear and reappear or something like that. So she's basically like a featured performer in the show. Okay. Now you, uh, I've heard you talk about, and I don't know, I remember the exact terminology, but there are certain terms that publishers use, uh, to describe the demographics to which they're trying to market. Um, and you kind of got caught in the middle, didn't you, between young adult, what was a young adult and current, new adult? Yeah, so the book is technically not a young adult book because the main protagonist is in her 20s. Um, at the time that this book came out, they kind of had a term called new adult. They actually don't even use this term anymore because it was kind of dumb. And they finally realized that it was dumb, like nobody knew what it was and... 
I, I mean, I, you know, you heard new adult. I, honestly, I was like, is that porn? Like, what is that? Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, they, they had this term called new adult, and that was uh, supposed to be, like, with the main protagonists in their, like, I think 20s or 30s. But, yeah, they would say, well, if the main protagonist is, is if it's a young adult book, the main protagonist needs to be 13 to 18. But for a lot of people... They don't, and, and, you know, in the movie world, and even I think a lot of people in the book world, like, don't really, like, get that either, because you would think that it's more like who the book would be for or the kind of audience that you're kind of, you know, like, the, the audience that, like, Twilight, uh, Harry Potter, Vampire Diaries, like, those are all the audience that would like my kind of book, and yet... You know, you would say, oh, well, it's not technically the same because the main protagonist is a bit older, but because Book World is basically saying, like, the people that want to read the book, they want to be the same age as the protagonist, but I don't really think that's the case. I, I When I read a book, I don't care how old the main character is. I just, if I like the subject. So right. no, it, it's kind of an antiquated thought process. I, I see where you're going. Now, now, let's get to the first part of this before we get to the scandal. How did you end up, or how does somebody, how do you, did you end up on the New York Times bestseller list for this book? Well, I sold books. That's how you end up there. But uh, it's, it's a little more complicated than that. So technically, uh, the New York Times, unlike, the US, unlike USA Today, which title I kept, is not solely based on sales. They say they're a curated list, which is why, like, and uh, 1983, William Blatty, uh, he sued the New York Times because he knew that his book Legion, which was uh, the movie, it became the movie Exorcist Three. Uh, he knew that it was outselling other books, but they had they didn't put him on the list. And he um, basically, you know, complained and uh, got to the point where you know he sued them for three million dollars and he lost because they said, well, it's a curious rated list and it's based on free speech. So he he lost that. Um, but uh, in reality, like, it, it's supposed to basically be somewhat based upon sales, but then at the end of the day, they can kind of do whatever they want. Like, I know if you, uh, if you put a book up in the same, like, week as Stephen King and you sold about the same number of books, Stephen King would still get the number one spot. Like you would have to, as an unknown author, oversell to for them to actually put you first. Otherwise, they're going to give it to Stephen King, which I think is weird. But well, it sounds to me like it's both a quantitative and qualitative uh, analysis or, or a decision making process. But um, now, I, it, another thing I learned, um, I listened to you on another show. You were talking about how sales uh, through different different methods are not weighted the same. So selling a book at a retailer is not the same as selling a book at a Comic-Con or a show or a book signing, which is also not the same, weighted the same as selling it on Amazon. How does that all work, and why is that? Why, why is it different? Yeah, so actually selling a book at a Comic-Con or, like, at these events I'm doing, like, if you don't put those sales through a bookstore, they actually don't get counted at all. Uh, if you actually buy a book at a bookstore and that bookstore does not report to the New York Times, they don't count. And there's a there's a New York Times and there's Bookscan. And like USA Today, the Washington Post, I think, uh, or whoever else, like they all go off a of Bookscan. New York Times, so 
a bookstore has to choose to report to the New York Times, and if they do, the New York Times does not weight the sales of a book the same. So, for example, if you buy it on Amazon, it's not weighted the same as if you go and buy it in an independent bookstore, uh, which, again, makes no sense to me. Why does why does my book sale count less on Amazon? Maybe I live in the middle of nowhere where there's no bookstore. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, like an independent bookstore, that counts more than... Than Amazon or like Walmart, if your if your book happens to be carried by Walmart, uh, and then yeah, if you if you I if I if I went to an event and ever let's say I don't know I'm making this event up, but let's just say this ABC event where there's ten thousand people and all ten thousand people bought my book, if we didn't put those sales through a bookstore, none of those sales would actually count. We're like. Music world. If you do a concert and you sell your CDs at the concert, the SoundScan has a way to report sales that happen at a at, at the concert. So it's it's really like you know again the book world is a little antiquated in the way that they do things. That is awfully strange, and I, you know you would seem to me that if your book, if the cover or the inside cover, or whatever has a barcode on it, with all the technology we have, they'd be able to track sales. But t- t- talk to me really quickly. How do you find out you're on the New York Times bestseller list? How does that happen? Uh, well, they, they have a, I mean, obviously they put out a list. But prior to, like, the official list getting public or uh, published, they send out, like, a like a preview list a couple days before, the uh, like, the actual list comes out to uh, publishers and other industry professionals. And so that list went to... Uh, my publisher, and then my publisher sent me an email saying, hey, you're number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And I was like, awesome. And then and then uh, the next morning, all hell broke loose. Yeah, so talk about that. We, we just learned how you find out you're on the list. How do you find out you're off? Uh, well, I, I mean, I'm the only one that's ever been kicked off. So I, I can't say that, you know, this, like, this isn't... I, again, a lot of people get left off the list. They just, you know... They'll, they'll just choose not to put you on, but I'm the only one that's ever been kicked off. So the way that I found out is, uh, it, well, like uh, this whole thing kind of went down over Twitter, and then somebody who had kind of started it on Twitter, who wasn't even supposed to have a copy of that list, like had a copy. And actually, they actually, I went from being number one, and then they published a list a few hours later, not a few hours, that next morning, at one point, they published a list where they flopped me and the other book. So I, at one point, I was one, and then I was two, which I guess I'm the only person that's ever been in two positions in the same week. <laughs> and then they published another list where I was off of it. So do they Now, do they call you and tell you, hey, we're taking you off the list, or did you just notice nope. you're off of it and you try to find out what's going on? No. Nope. To this day, I'm still actually waiting on them to call me and tell me or, like, talk to me about why they did that. Because what they accused me of is uh, they kind of accused me of, like, bulk buying, which I didn't do. But even if I had, they have a a method of, like, what they do is they put a dagger next to your name. So why they didn't just put a dagger next to my name if that's what they thought I did? Because they literally have a precedent. Like, if we think this happened, we're going to put a dagger next to that book's name. The fact that they just removed me, that's what made it so crazy, because that's literally never happened before. 
Now, obviously, I mean, you know, for to an extent, why? I mean, they 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 accused you of bulk buying and then selling them back. How do you find that well, out? Do they? Do to, they... Be, to, to be clear, they never accused me of anything. They never said anything. Okay. This is what people. This is what people on Twitter were accusing me of, and then the New York Times removed me. So, okay. This, this is what random people on Twitter said, but New York Times never actually said anything. So like I said, I'm still waiting on an answer as to for them to get back to me. I'm waiting by the phone. I'm holding my breath. <laughs> I can tell. I mean, how long has it been? Uh, August of 2017. Uh, you may not want to hold your breath. You may sure. you may run out of breath. You may run out of oxygen. There's something may happen to your hemoglobin in your blood. I don't know. Um, in any case, so this is basically people on the internet and on social media who are accusing you of doing this. Um, are you able to? Were you able to count on your publisher to, uh, or do you have a PR person or somebody to 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 respond and to and to tell your side of the story, or is it just all you? We, I mean, we had a PR person. We actually even hired a crisis management company because. We were told to do that, and they really didn't, uh, they really, I mean, if I'm being honest, I don't think they did a great job uh, because they didn't get handled. Uh, you know, I mean, the reality is, is, like, the people that, like, I was in 796 articles in nine days, and I think three or four reporters actually reached out to me to, like, talk to me about what actually happened. Everyone else just wrote what they thought happened without getting the side of the story from me. And, I, and when people actually hear it from me, they're like, oh, yeah, you got you got kind of over. Like, like, I'm so sorry. But, you know, when you just, when you take, you know, it's, it's like playing that game of telephone. Right. You know, you, like, you who don't, you know, you who don't know what happened, like, go and make this decision and decide what you think happens and goes and tells a bunch of people. And then everyone decides that's what happened. And then you start, like, this campaign to get somebody, you know, book removed from the list. when You don't even know what happened. And you don't bother to ask me what happened. That's amazing. I think so, I saw I saw a review on, I think it was Book Riot, that was not very flattering to you. I mean, they didn't pull any punches either. Um, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't uh, repeat what they said. But, you know, at the end of the day, and I think you and I explained to you what I do for a living, uh, if this was something I were doing at work, I would evenly weigh all the different evidence and all the different sides and, uh, and try to come to a conclusion. But at the end of the day, I didn't have you on the show. You know, I, you're here to tell your story, and we're interested in hearing from you. Now, you've actually mentioned before that the New York Times has uh, has had people on their list who have done almost exactly or very similar to what you have been accused of doing, and yet they kind of shrugged their shoulders. Oh, no. Like I said, they have a, like, what I, they, what I was accused of doing they have an actual system. They will put. They don't remove you from the list. They put a dagger next to your name, and that's and and that's like nobody cares about that. Literally, if they had done that to me, it wouldn't have mattered. No one would have batted an eye. It like what what caused my life to come like crumbling down was the fact that they actually removed me, which looked really bad. And again, that's not even what they even say they do. They say, you put a dagger, and that's what they've always done. Like, for example, Tony Shea supposedly bought a bunch of his books and gave them away. And I don't, I mean, I don't care if Tony, I mean, you know, again, that, that's where that, that's where the whole, like, sales question gets really complicated. And this actually came up with Donald Trump Jr. 
the Donald Trump Jr. put out a book, and the Republican Party, I guess, bought a bunch and gave them away. And, you know, there's this argument. Well, I mean, technically he sold those books, so they're sales. Like, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and maybe people think on that level that it doesn't count the same, but I... But when I equate it down to, you know, let's say that you you bought my book and you loved it, and you bought, you know, you bought a hundred books for me because you wanted to give one to everybody that you, everyone that you want to give Christmas presents to, and you're going to give one to like should those sales count less? I mean, I don't think so. Like they're sales. I mean, I had a lady last night at my book signing. She bought six books because she was buying them for Christmas presents. Does that mean that I, I don't, like, because she bought more than one? Like, you know, you can't you can't equate it that way. It doesn't matter why someone bought the book. Right. It was the book bought, it was bought, it was a sale. It's a sale. Like, so that's where it's like when people get on their high horse and they say, well, it's, it's not the same. I mean, you know, but that's why they have this whole dagger thing. But for some reason, it, you know, made the exception for me and didn't use it. Right. I don't know why. Now, um, is it possible, and, and maybe this is, I'm, I'm too much of a, you know, glasses half full person, but do you think that the internet traffic that you got because of this happened uh, caused you to have your book to have a little bit more, uh, get more people talking about it and, and, and wondering what's in it than had it simply just been on the New York Times bestseller list and there was no controversy? Yeah, I just did have more people talking about it, but it wasn't the right kind of conversation and it didn't. I mean, I, I have people to this day treat me differently because, well, I, I mean, they act like I murdered someone because they believe what they read on the Internet about my book. Yeah, and unfortunately, once it's out there on the Internet, you can't take it back. There's no taking it down. You can't put the, you know, what do they call the genie back in the bottle or, you know, whatever it, whatever the, yeah, the saying no, is. Yeah. You know, whatever the saying is. But at the end of the day, uh, it sounds like you've been awfully busy doing your wizard con- your wizard cons and your and your wizard fest and, and the comic cons you know that is not a world that i'm too familiar with i think the first time i don't even think they use the term comic con but the first time i ever was aware of anything like that was when i first saw one of my favorite movies uh chasing amy and um you know banky edwards and, and holden mcneil are there signing their book blunt man and chronic and and uh, Alyssa's there, you know, doing her, her, her book, and Hooper X is doing his. And that was really the first introduction I had to anything Comic-Con related. And it seems like in the past 20, 25 years, those things have really exploded. So um, kind of tell me about what you do and how busy you are and, and, and whether or not you think. It seems to me that you're getting a good opportunity to, to meet people basically face-to-face on the ground level and, and, and kind of tell your side of the story. Well, you know, I don't really, you know, I don't bring it up unless somebody does. Like, you know, if they come, if they, if they ask me, like I, and, and I, to be honest, it doesn't come up often to my face, you know, like people don't, uh, uh I, I, I did the, I had the other night, I had a guy bring it up to me, but that's pretty rare. Like, so I don't, I don't like, I try not to focus on it, obviously, because, you know, it, it was, you know, if you had something terrible happen to you, I'm sure you don't go around telling everybody that you need about it. Right. Right. So I don't shy away from it. I'm obviously happy to talk about it if someone brings it up. Um, and like I said, it, it does happen, but um, I don't lead with that. So, you know, when people come up, I tell them that the book was 34 on the USA Today bestseller list when it came out, which is true. Uh, you know, I talk about what it's about. I, I, I have them read the inside cover. 
to see if it's something they would like, and, you know, a lot of people buy it, and I, I, I started putting pictures of me with people that buy the book, because people try to say my sales weren't real, so now you go on my Facebook page, and you'll literally see, see me with thousands of pictures of people who bought my book, because that's what I do now, um, and I get messages all the time asking when the next book's coming out, people that read it, loved it, does everyone love the book? No. Uh, you know, does everyone like any book? You know, is any book loved by everyone? No. It doesn't matter how popular it is. Yeah, I, um... um... I guess I guess I was kind of wondering, and and I wouldn't expect people necessarily to come up and talk about it, but at least you you have the opportunity to to to, to put yourself out there and, and put your book out there. And um, I I don't imagine if somebody's approaching your table and wants to buy a copy of your book or sign it, they want to bring up the negative. Now you did mention um, oh people have people <laughs> have I guess that it doesn't happen often, but but you know at the flip side, like sometimes they. Like, they're like, oh, the book looks interesting. I don't have money to buy it right now. Like, I'm going to take your postcard because I have postcards that I give out. Like, I'm going to look it up later. And when they say that, I'm always like, okay. Because, like, I, I know if they look it up, they're going to find that stuff and, and, you know, probably not buy the book, unfortunately. Well, I would hope that's not the case, but you actually did mention something a few minutes ago that, you know, that it was I wanted to ask you about. People are asking you, you know, when is the next, when is the next book coming out and the next book in the series? Uh, have you started writing? Have you talked to your publisher? Have you developed storylines or story ideas for the next installment? Uh, yeah, I have I have them all, like, outlined, um, and they're all, you know, in various stages. Like, it's a five-book series. My publisher went out of business during COVID, so I actually need to find a new publisher. That so. could be a problem. Yeah. Um. So, oh, in any case, uh, if people want to get Handbook for Mortals, if they want to look you up, what what are your social media handles for for my listeners? Uh, well, um, my hand the, for the book itself, uh, my, uh, I, you know what, and I gotta I gotta look because I you think like I get I get them confused now because like what some are Handbook series and some are Handbook for Mortals. Well, the way, the one so I found my, for you on Instagram was Handbook for Mortals. Yeah. My Instagram's Handbook for Mortals. Uh, my website is Handbook Series. I think the Twitter is Handbook Series. And I think Facebook is Handbook for Mortals. Um, I believe that's, that's right. And then, and then I'm on, I'm on, um, yeah, Twitter's Handbook Series. I never tweet, by the way. I think I'm just kind of averse to Twitter after everything that happened. But, um, uh, I, um, uh, I, I'm on I'm on Instagram. I'm L A N I E R S on Instagram, and then I have a Facebook page that's Lanny Serum Public, um, and I keep those actually pretty active. And then whenever I I go to an event, I take pictures with people. They always go on the Facebook page um, for the for handbook. Uh, that's where I put all of those. Well, you know what, Lanny Serum, author of Handbook for Mortals and uh, celebrity of the Comic Con and Wizard Circuit or Wizard Con Circuit. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much for being my guest today. I learned a lot. And, you know, like I said, this is your genre that you write in. It's definitely not something that, you know, a, a 47, almost 48-year-old man is expected to be too familiar with. But I learned something about it. And I do have I do have two, two daughters. One's a tween and one's a little bit younger. So maybe they'll be in that market pretty soon. I'm glad that I was able to talk to you. Uh, I want to thank you for being on our show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, stay tuned for another episode next uh, week or two of the Square Peg Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, with stories of mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Hey, if you are having a wedding, 
uh, and you need a photographer or videographer, if you are a local artist in the southern New Mexico or West Texas area and you uh, need a video, a music video made, uh, a real good place to go is my, my friend Isaac Palafox's business, Palomore Productions. Uh, they're located pretty close to Las Cruces downtown. And uh, you can find them on Facebook, you can find them on Instagram and all those different places. Uh, you can also get them at uh, www.palamora.com for all your weddings, music videos, and anything else you need a professional videographer or photographer. The Square Peg Podcast. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.